Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hi there, and welcome to God's Planning. Uh, my name is Father Patrick Mary Briscoe. I'm the parochial vicar at St. Pius V Parish in Providence, Rhode Island. And joining me today is my classmate, Father Bonaventure Chapman. Say hello, Father Bonaventure. Hello, everyone. I am a student, a PhD student in philosophy at Catholic University of America, living at the Dominican House of Studies. And Father Patrick, Mary, and I are delighted to be talking with you today. Our subject uh, we chose for today is we, we want to unpack in very broad strokes this might be wildly irresponsible, but, but that, that's not going to stop us. Nonetheless. It, it, it never has, in fact, stopped us. Uh, we're, we're going to unpack in very broad strokes this, this shift between what we think are two very different um, cosmologies, two very different ways of, of looking at the world, experiencing the world of living and thinking. We're going to unpack the difference between a kind of ancient worldview and a modern worldview. In the history of the United States of America, which is kind of unique in the, in the histories of nations throughout the world, there was one revolution, right? That's, 1776. You could, I mean, you might, the war yeah. between the states, you might say was a uh, revolution too, but really, yeah, one founding yeah, the way that, the way, the, the way that you're taught history in fourth grade. That's know, right. There, was, there yeah. was one war, there was one war, and um, somehow George Washington pulled the rabbit out of his hat, and then America which was pretty amazing. And now freedom because America. Yeah. And that's <laughs> largely a simplistic view. Even if you add the fact that it wasn't just George Washington, but also Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Ben Franklin, and a whole slew of other people who I don't even know about. It's not a history buff. Um, a but French that's, blockade, you know, surrounding Yorktown. That's right. The French helped out us a lot. Helped et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but there was one in the history of the United States, there was one, there was one revolution. Um, and in the, in, the, in the history of other nations, it, things are much more complicated. Like I always like to point out, in the history of France, there, there, are many, there, there have been actually many revolutions. Um, as, the, as kind of modern France was formed in the 16th century and eventually shifted from monarchy to democracy, uh, that shift has gone back and forth several different times. There was not one revolution in France the way that there was one revolution in the United States. So too, when we're, when we're talking about this kind of shift of thought, this worldview, we're, we're talking about revolutions of lots of different things um, which are participating in this, in this shift, uh, this, this one shift of worldview, revolutions in politics, revolutions in philosophy, revolutions in the, na uh, the natural sciences and scientific discovery, revolutions in literature, uh, re revolutions in, in just daily living. So we're, we're going to touch on all of this today. But um, Father Bonaventure, why don't, you, why don't you unpack this, this one shift, the, the one shift that we want to talk about, the shift from the ancient to the modern worldview, which, which we've described as the shift from a descending cosmos to an ascending cosmos. Yeah, you could even, so I guess there's plenty of ways you could unpack the ancient to the modern. There's all sorts of rubrics or lenses or hermeneutics we could use, ways of understanding it. But I think the, the most important one, um, is, or at least one of the overarching themes is the shift of understanding where order comes from, how order is developed, and how we tie into that order as humans. Right. So, right. so Father, Father Patrick talked about de descending versus ascending. And 
in the broadish brushstrokes, you could say that the ancient view is that one, there's order in the world. There's order in the world, inside us, all these things. And two, it's an order that is descending. So coming from outside or above to below and inside. In the modern paradigm, you could say that when order is something that moderns accept, and we can talk a little about how postmodernity comes out of modernity as a rejection of, of order just entirely, but the moderns in general, so we're talking, say, 1400s and onwards, although obviously demarcating here is tricky, but 1400s, so Galileo onwards, you could say. The moderns still think there is order. Of course, there's order. It has to be reason. It has to be understanding. But it's no longer an order from above or outside, but now it can be an order from below and inside. So that there is a shift in order, an understanding of the order. Largely, the source of order. For the ancients, of course, the source of order comes from the one or being, the cosmos, God, depending on what, you know, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, you're Greek or Jewish, in the moderns, any order that's there is something that comes from largely man's work, comes from the own, your own created mind. So that's a f mm -hmm. one fundamental way of seeing the shift between the ancients and the modern is where order comes from, who creates it, and in a sense, how we are a part of it. The ancient, for the ancients, order is something we step into, or the ancient view, we could say, since you could still have hold of this view today if you wanted in, in adumbrated ways. Order is something that we step into, we take our place in, it's like getting in line at a certain point. Whereas for the moderns, the modern conception, order is something that you create. You know, you come into a, a messy room, for instance, and you organize it. That's a typically modern way if we start expanding that notion out to how all fields of knowledge go is that order isn't something we stumble on discover order is something we impose create or produce so the modern people invented the container store whereas ancient people discovered it uh, ancient people don't even think about containers they don't know what to do with this sort of thing uh, but moderns i mean moderns like to to categorize things they like to nail things down the ancients in another way um you could say the ancients aren't as as worried about the categorization i suppose because they're not anxious about ordering the world because it already has a pre a pre assumed order whereas the moderns i suppose if you're anxious and worried the fact that there might not be order if order depends on you then you better believe that getting everything straight and in the right boxes right sizes right plastics right containers all that kind of thing is really important to keeping the world in good shape for an ancient uh, or medieval model, world's going to be fine without you. It's already ordered. You're just a piece of this puzzle. For a modern, the whole puzzle depends on how you piece it together. I like also, when I've heard you talk about this before, Father Bonaventure, you've used the image of, of stars, um, how, how people approach the stars. So a sort of ancient or, or even medieval uh, person would look at the stars and see the stars as exerting a kind of influence, right? That the heavenly spheres... Uh, move things below, and the stars are are, are things worthy worthy of marveling at, uh, because they exert a kind of influence, and and they're they're so grand. Um, whereas modern people know that stars are hunks of 
dust, very compact dust that are very cold, that are very far away. Yeah, that's, and so as one of these revolutions from the ancient modern conception, we could drill down on the Galileo revolution as largely about this question, what are stars in, in a way? It's, it's more complicated that, of course, most people think that the Galileo revolution is about uh, pure unadulterated reason versus a dogmatic authoritarian church against each other. But when you drill down into the documents, you read over them, you realize that it's, it's more about two philosophical overarching worldviews. In some ways, it's about this question of order. Is there right. order to the universe? Is the universe, as Charles Taylor calls it, a cosmos? Or is the universe actually just a universe? For, for the cardinals of the church at that time, of course, um, they're basing their cosmology off Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas' accounts, other things mixed together, that there is this ultimate order and meaning that when you look up into the sky, you see things above you. And above you is not just some sort of spatial location. Above has the sense of normative meaning. Above you, it should be more important in a way. It descends. Right, sort right. Of thing. So, so the heaven, above us are the heavens. And the heavens. And, and it's not it's not coincidental that of course the heavens are the place of, of God and the angels and all of this. And also that they're above us. Like that's the same for us. We come into as moderns when we talk about the, we talk about heaven and the heavens, <clears throat> they mean two distinct things. The heavens is an old fashioned word for the sky or for the, for this, for space. Whereas heaven is that place wherever it is and whatever, however we want to talk about it metaphysically where God exists um, and where the spiritual reality in a sense. But for the ancients, there's no distinction. The heavens and heaven are not distinguished in that way because both are ordered properly and they're both higher realms. They're both places that God exists and works through to his creation, context his creation. So for the ancient view of cosmology, the ancient view of the stars, is that the stars are a, a part between God or the first mover, what have you, um, and then the material realm. So there's the there's earth at the center, you know, and then there's the stars outside of that. And that the planets are between the, the fixed stars and the earth. But it's all this beautiful hierarchy such that you can find even in Christian, uh, Christian thought, as the Christ, Christians appropriate this, these beautiful images of uh, Christ in the center and then divine ideas around him and then angels and then the zodiac symbols, and then the world, okay? And you wonder, what are the zodiac symbols doing there? Well, the sense is that they are the perfect mediators of angelic activity, and angels are the mediators of the divine plan. And the divine plan, of course, is, is the, the mind of God, the will of God. So you have all these high, this hierarchy, you could say, in the physical world. And the ancients saw the stars as pointing to God's causal powers and God's relationship in their purity. I mean, if you think about it, we don't really think about this that much because we think differently in a second, but I mean, stars have this pure white brilliance. There's a sort of purity and perfection to them. They don't go anywhere. You know, they're always there. Uh, they move around on consistent patterns, but I can always look at them. I always know they're going to be there. That's a constancy there that the human realm and everything that around us change, changes doesn't really have. Right. So then there's the shift. So we talk about going from that model about this order that we are underneath the heavens 
and the heavens are ordered by God, and there's this nice, beautiful order how they relate to each other. Well, Galileo and, this, and the kind of Galilean revolution is looking at the stars and starts to say, you know, the stars aren't actually these perfect spheres. They're not these perfect ethereal bodies that Aristotle thought they were and cosmology thought they were. It turns out they're made of stuff like the thing we're standing on. And it starts a whole track of research and discoveries and changes in understanding that turns out the stars are just kind of, as we think today, the same thing as, as the earth is, you know, that our sun is a star, just like there are billions of stars. Right. And when we look out in, in space, it's just a bunch of stuff, a bunch of matter and it's arrangement as opposed to being a meaningful constellation of God's ordering creation. It's now just this random organization through some sort of evolutionary stellar nebulous theory as kind of matter spins into shape from the big bang, all this kind of thing. But it's notice that instead of a descending order from God, as he creates and goes down to the lower levels of creation, you could say where we are, right? The modern account is that things come from the big bang, a singularity and outward. So the heavens right. in a sense are a later product uh, farther down, you know, now this changes. <laughs> everything because now there's no the heavens which we used to be the mediators between god and man where the angels the sort of thing where you have this hierarchy mediation now you have there's no everything's the same there's a homogeneity to creation there's no more hierarchy it's just different locations of stuff so the stars now are just matter and space garbage just like we're matter and space garbage and they know the unit the cosmos which is an ordered whole is now no longer an ordered whole it's just a physical constellation conglomeration of different things so it, looking at the stars now to us it doesn't say anything about order and god and our place in creation whereas for an ancient looking at the stars was one way of finding meaning in the sense of where order is Right. Now, what should be fascinating is you should think, well, right, exactly. The ancient view is stupid. And I'm <laughs> like, of course, why would you possibly use stars to tell you anything? I mean, that's astrology. That's what weird people practice. And that's what power crystals are about and vortexes and what? And this sort of thing, like, oh, exactly. Those guys were idiots. And I want to just point out that, well, two things, I suppose. One thing is to a large extent, like, yes, of course. I mean don't plan your life based on the zodiac symbols right although a lot of people still do okay but or two, tarot cards or, yeah or any any of these kind of things like yeah but what's most interesting to me is how easily we align ourselves with the modern view that yeah everything outside of me is just stuff it doesn't have any order doesn't bespeak any order right like those the the entire universe that you look up in the sky means nothing except that it's a terrifying darkness and a void and black. Um, how that is so obvious to us, Galilean revolution is that to get them to realize that the ancient view is not some nonsense uh, because they just don't have any conception of how the ancient sense of the cosmos mediating significance and having a hierarchy would make any sense. is plausible at all. So, Right. Um, astrology is incorrect. We've proved it scientifically. You can do this sort of thing. 
uh, with taste <laughs> test studies. But more importantly is, well, what, so what? Well, here, the point is that if the stars don't mean anything, then we start to think, oh, well, if there's no orders in the stars, well, then there might not be order below the stars, right? So there might not be order anywhere else. So, it's one, so notice this one shift um, of going from a cosmos to a universe, from an ordered hierarchy of different levels of being to just random space dust uh, and our spinning around on it. Well, it starts to raise questions about, well, if that's just random stuff and we're on random stuff, well, then maybe there's no order to our, our, our daily lives or our political lives or our philosophical lives or anything else. It's in a sense like a universal acid. Once you start saying, well, there's no descending hierarchy in the, in the cosmos, maybe there's no descending hierarchy anywhere else in society, that sort of stuff. Right. I mean, this is the problem when science shows up in the Corvette and says, hey, philosophy, get in the car with me. I'm driving now. Yeah. that's. And I'm going to take you places. You better be ready. Yeah. And it's a sense of the shift from uh, science as astronomy, as in uh, trying to read and understand things, to then science as techne, uh, which we tend to think of when, when someone says, what's science? They tend to think, well, do you mean pure science or do you mean science like science and technology in a sense of doing stuff and it's right there that you see again this shift of order that order is not something that you come and you look at and you try to discover but order is something that you can now create and impose so if there's any order to be found in the stars it's how we can harness them to use them for different resources i mean when you go see a uh, a giant the, one of those sun this field of of sun power um, solar power panels or something. Well, that's saying, yeah, any order there is in the sun is just order of the power of light. And we're going to harness that and turn that into our own order, which is our own technology, our own power and this sort of thing. So no longer are we looking at the sun as a mediating idea of God powering life and all this sort of thing or whatever the ancients might have seen. But we just see it as this resource. Uh, famous German philosopher Martin Heidegger talked about this, the switch to seeing the world as meaningful to being as a world of standing reserve as something we just take re for resources. His object is the, a, a, a stream. And so how you put a watermill on this and you turn a stream or a river into a source of power, right? And it's interchangeable with anything else. I think it's just with the sun, it's just as easy. Instead of seeing the sun as this object of, of, of mediation um, as a, a created thing that mediates some activity and causal powers. We now say we can harness this, harness this to our own will and figure out a way to make our lives better through solar power, which you can make your, I mean, you don't have to, those little Malibu lights now, you know, you don't have to put batteries in them. You don't plug them in. Like you can harness the sun. The universe can be manipulated to your benefit. The question is, what is the downside of that? And how did we get to a point where, right we see it only as that. And what are the, what are the dangers of that? Right. A, a kind of, a kind of related example, um, just getting at this question from, from a completely different perspective. Mm -hmm. I, I, saw, I saw the, I, I was flying recently and I saw the Tolkien biopic, you know, this, mm -hmm. new, uh, mm -hmm. this new film about his early life. And, and there were some really great moments in it. There were some other things that I was deeply offended by, like the near complete absence of any kind of substantial Christianity, which was so deeply formative to him. Mm -hmm. You know, so little, little things like that. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, like missing the whole point. Yeah. But there, but there, were, there were some really good moments. And, and one, of, one of those heights was when he 
when Tolkien discovers his his vocation um, to philology, right? So he's sitting mm-hmm. on a bench with this professor um, at Oxford, and they're having a conversation about words. And Tolkien and this professor um, are are manifesting or articulating the the very ancient view that um, the meaning of words is not imposed upon them. Mm-hmm that the meaning of words is discovered and that they in themselves, words, language, bear realities um, in a kind of unalterable and fundamental way. Mm-hmm. And this is, this, is just another, this is just another explanation of the shift, right? Because modern people tend to, be, tend to see the alphabet and to say, well, I can just arrange these things and they can mean different things. And um, any, any book could be a book as, and we can call it whatever it is. And that disregarding the term book and replacing it with water bottle um, doesn't, doesn't fundamentally undermine the thing. I would say that that would be a kind of modern ascending view, right? We can, we can rearrange the Lego pieces of reality and build whatever we want out of them. Um, but, but Tolkien and this philology professor were suggesting that there was something more fundamental about language. Now I know philosophy of language is a whole other thing, but yeah. It captures it captures the kind of heart of what we're trying to articulate today. Yeah, I mean, I think there the difference between receiving and you could whether you want to talk about how words get their meanings from some sort of deep ontological sense or whether you want to do historical continuity and tradition. It's receiving something uh, as right. previously ordered, however that might come about, as opposed to starting from, from scratch and trying to decide that you can order anything you want. I mean, I think the words in terms of political discourse are an example of this, how you can, we can change, we can fundamentally change the meaning of our words um, all the time. And we just know that you, you can't impose order in that way without having disastrous social consequences. Um, that, but that is, that's an example of us trying to develop order where it might be, us assuming that there is no order unless we already develop it, as opposed to us assuming that there's order uh, and that we need to develop in, lo- in line with it, or that, that might be, it might be dangerous not to. Um, I think, go ahead. You, meant, you, mentioned a, you mentioned a really great literary example of this um, when, we, when, when we were talking uh, just before the show here, of the, the kind of response that Melville makes in his novel, uh, Moby Dick to to some of the ideas that Hawthorne puts forward in the Scarlet Letter. Would you would you say a little bit more about that? Sure. So I suppose this is another example uh, you could use for this. And although Melville is going to move in from the modern to in a sense postmodern, you can see it in in the book itself, which I love. Um, but so Nathaniel Hawthorne writes the Scarlet Letter, and of course the Scarlet Letter is about uh, the minister who has uh, spoiler alert. Um, committed adultery with, with the woman and the whole time the woman has to wear this scarlet letter on her um hester prim is that her yes um, yeah well so, done yeah hence so, the name of the novel the scarlet letter the scarlet letter yeah i was thinking and and so and like the minute the whole point is she has to wear this thing because they, she has transgressed or there's been a transgression against moral norms and such so there's the christian what, what do you say about that okay uh, it's a beautiful novel and hathorne was friends with melville and Melville wrote, uh, at least I remember reading this, Melville writes Moby Dick in response to Hawthorne because in a sense, Hawthorne's novel has to do with the order of sexual morality and the disorder that, it's, it, that comes about from trespassing that and a bunch of other themes on there as well. Melville is, is writing Moby Dick as a response to the Christian notion of order 
because in Moby Dick, there's a not, I mean, it's not a theistic kind of novel. It's not a Christian novel. It's explicitly against that because the central figure in that, the one that brings order to that whole universe is not God in a moral, moral structure in the way the Scarlet Letter has it, but it's the white whale. The white right. whale is the thing that organizes that whole novel in a way. For the first half of it, when you're spending all this time looking up a cetology and Melville's talking, telling you just in copious detail about whales. But once you get in the, the search for it, once Ahab steps on deck, right, you're now pinned down to him and this white whale is this object of order. So it directs everything. You're stuck with this guy through this, through this journey. Now, the interesting part about that is that, one, the order is not uh, from a higher being, but in a sense it's from a lower being. It's from a whale as opposed to God or even a man. Two, Ahab, as the central character, is the one who's ordering that universe in response to the whale. So the whale is the ordered object, whereas Ahab is the subject of order in it. And three, massive spoiler, spoiler alert here. Okay, What you realize with the whale is Ahab comes up against the, it's the white whale because it doesn't actually care about Ahab. It's a blank. It's a nothing. For Melville, this is the functional point of God. This is where God kind of functions in his, which is to be absent. So when Ahab finally confronts this whale, it's not like the cartoon versions where the whale is this, this you know, demonic thing that's attacked. It's Ahab versus the whale, like they're two intentional beings. But rather, the whale doesn't care. Like no, one of the it's just being a whale. One of the most tragic parts about this is that Ahab, everyone has followed and set their life in the entire journey on the fact that Ahab needs to get this whale. He needs to reorder. It's this, he's taking his leg. He needs to reorder the cosmos. He's going to do it. It's not like he's accepted the order of the cosmos as it is that he transgressed against a whale and it took his leg and all this sort of thing. Who is he? But he's trying to reorder the entire cosmos around this justice with this whale, his arch enemy. But it's not his arch enemy. It, doesn't, it can't fill that role. It doesn't even care about him. So it turns out that the thing that he's organizing the world around is actually without meaning. Right. And this is where Melville says, in place of Hawthorne's Christian order of reality, we have the entire disorder, the nihilistic void of this whale and the failure of one man, Ahab, and those around him to impose meaning on the world. I mean, Ahab doesn't accept the meaning of the world. He tries to impose it, that he's going to get this will, and that'll be revenge and all this sort of thing. But it turns out he won't be satisfied with that. He can't, because he can't impose meaning on a meaningless world. So, you know, that's, that's the ult- And I think that's a beautiful image of not only the attempt of man to create meaning, as opposed to accept the meaning of the world and his place in it. Ahab doesn't accept his place in the world. He, he rather tries to grasp it. But in doing so, we move from modernity to post-modernity and realize that he's incapable of doing so because you right. can only grasp some order in the world. You can only, in a sense, make the order because it's already there, present to be received in some fashion. And Millville wants to tell us that actually there is no order out there. It's all just cosmic flux, whether it's a whale or whether it's the stars or whether it's anything. So you will end up failing to have any order if you don't receive it. So you can't, you can't impose it or create it or produce it. It turns out that in a sense, 
between order, it's not between order descend or ascending, but between order just itself. Order either descends or it doesn't exist at all. And that's right. post-modernities in a sense, I would say large, again, broad brushstrokes response to um, the question of order. And now, I mean, whether we like it or not, this is, this is the universe that we're living in, um, a, a universal cool. world that has shifted from this, you know, by and writ large, has shifted from this ancient view to this modern view. It's the air we breathe, it's the water we drink, it's everything around us. So as, as people of faith, um, you know, living, living in, the, in this environment, what, what kinds of things can we pull away from this? Uh, you know, for day to day, what what are some what are some consequences? Uh, mm. You know, Father Bonaventure of of thinking about these worldviews, uh, this this contrast, this shift in our in our day to day life. Because because I I can think of several that that are that are that are very significant um, and 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 very personal. So I'll, I'll well, toss I'll to you and then add mine. Okay, I'll start. I'll start then. Um, the first is to say that the modern view is not entirely correct. We talked about astrology versus astronomy and uh, that the ancient view in terms of um, incorrect geocentrism, heliocentrism, whatever you want to talk about that. At the same time, though, the modern view that everything is just random, that there's an organization for the Christian, for the Catholic, for the one who says the Nicene Creed every Sunday, you know, that we believe in, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things were made. The Christian vision is that creation itself, all reality, if not ordered in some sort of ancient Aristotelian or Greek hierarchy of cosmos, is still an ordered hierarchy. It's still ordered by God's creating word. So if part of the hierarchy, if we don't see stars in the same way as, as say, the medievals would have seen stars, as mediators of angels, that's not to say that there's no hierarchy and that there's no order to the universe. As Christians, we believe that actually there is order because things are created in Christ. So for us, the order of the universe then just changes its focus. In a sense, we no longer look to the stars, you could say, to find out cosmic significance. But in a lot of ways, we look to a different kind of star. The scriptures would be an example. And this is why church on Sunday is so important. In a sense, reading from the scriptures is a way we learn to reorient ourselves to the true order of the world, which is not just a moral order, but also as a physical order. So that's, so one first thing to say is that this true, this view is not the ancient versus the modern view. It's not so clean and tight on that. There are parts of the ancient view which are incorrect, but parts are very important. And there's parts of the modern view which are correct, technology and such, but are lacking, right? Are lacking. So right. we can say there, there is order in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I would absolutely agree. I mean, the, the fundamental thing that, you know, I would like to underscore for, for us as Christians is, is that we're subject to God's providence, not as, not as tools in his hand, um, you know, as blind tools in his hand, but cooperators mm -hmm. in our free will of, uh, of, of, uh, of working out his plan. And that can be, that can be perfected um, insofar as we collaborate more intensely with God and the, the kind of haunting the kind of haunting side of that is that that we can turn away from it, and that we can we can prove our we can prove our hearts and our lives um, obstacles, and, and and God God allows that to be right. This is all this is all part of this is all part of what He's governed. So we're not we're neither determinists um, nor nor fatalists, and, but but instead turning as as a hopeful people, knowing knowing that that God is continuing to order and direct um, the reality that we see. 
So we need we need to underscore divine providence, like triple underline it. Yeah, I think that's that's a perfect thing because in a sense where the ancients saw the stars and astrology and you could say the horoscopes and all of this, it's wrong that the star is in control of, of events, but it's not wrong to say that God is is in control of events. And providence is one way where God orders not just internally our feelings or something, but actually, I mean, he has control over all being. So he can order every event and every cause to, to his working on his will. Now, obviously, and maybe this is a topic for later discussion, how free will kind of fits in this and with his providence ordering different, you know, important question and complicated question. But the fact of the matter is that God works through all of these things. I think St. John Baptist de Sal, someone who both father Patrick, Mary and I are, are, very related to and uh, appreciative of because we were both trained by Christian brothers. What he up? Talked, he talked about providence, the importance of providence as seeing God's will in the daily events and occurrences of one's life. So to look, we have this vision, I think today that, and this is the mediation question, right? That there's no hierarchy, that it's just you, God, and then a bunch of material stuff. Right. So when God works in your life, he works like internally as if he like gives you dreams and just those things. And he does that too. But God works through all things, physical events, because he can do that. Right. He can use those things. And John, and we've, that seems so odd to us. Right. And so repugnant, the idea that God can use physical events to kind of describe and determine and, and our life and tell us what to do. But it's something that we should be attentive to because God is providential order in all things. And therefore, we can find meaning in these events, you know, and I think all of us have a sense of that. When we look back in our lives, we might see, oh, that, you know, right there, that occurrence, that's why I didn't do X and X would be really bad. That's, yeah. Sometimes it's hard to tease those out, of course, uh, right. on this. but I think you're right to say that providence and trusting that is, is super important. I think also in the sense that there are, just realizing that there are hierarchies and that we have a place within them, it puts us, it keeps us humble. Right. Um, because one of the big problems, the modern one is Titanism. The idea that you, you become in a sense of God, you know, if the ordering principle of the world is you, then well, you're akin to God's, you have, you have something akin to God's power. And any power we have to order is one that's given to us by God. So, understanding the hierarchies in the more ancient sense and thinking about them and really praying about it is seeing each one of us as important, but also in a larger scheme of things. So we're, it teach it has a natural humility to it, which I think is something that we lose in the modern, the modern sense. We feel like we can right. do everything. Right. In the, in and that, the hierarchy can be a great consolation for us. Think for example, of the kind of certitude that comes from the sacraments. This is, this is the great mercy of the, of, of the sacrament of confession. Making a good confession and hearing the priest say to you, I absolve you from your sins, means, means that, you have, that you have the comfort of, of participating in, an, in, in that structure and knowing exactly where you are within it. Of course, God is not bound by the sacraments. He can work outside of them, but, but they are the normative means of, his, of, of the communication of his grace. And for us, that, that comes as, as, a real, as a relief, as a consolation, and it gives us a kind of strength of knowing, knowing where we are in, in, in respect to his operations and our relationship with God. Um, so, so I think the sacraments are a kind of, they're, they're kind of um, coming out, right, of, of this understanding of, 
of hierarchy and how things are mediated, including things like his divine grace. That's a working out of, of order. I think, again, the fundamental principle, if there's something to take away from this broad brush understanding of modernity and, and, and the ancient worldview, is order in its source. And the, the sacraments are a hierarchy of order, of mediation of things, so that God, working through Christ, his, his son, working through the priest, coming to us. There's a, I mean, there's just, there's a hierarchy there, right? And of course, it's no surprise then that you see in the modern world from Luther onwards, this kind of denial, this move away from hierarchy in the sense that, well, the popes, bishops, de- priests, deacons, lay people, that whole model of hierarchy is going to be counted as this ancient kind of thing like astrology. Whereas we can take great comfort and say, well, no, I mean, some hierarchies might be overblown, but the idea of hierarchy and order in general tells me where I am. It's like a GPS locator. If you look at your, you know, your iPhone or something on Google maps says here I am in relation to everything else. And without that hierarchy, we don't know who we are, where we are, and we don't know how to go anywhere from there. You need to know where you are to go somewhere. I think the hierarchies, especially in the sacraments, give you a sense of where am I related to God? How am, how's my life of holiness involved? How, where am I along that path? that's where I can set up a hierarchy to do that. I mean, Dante's divine comedy, of course, you could do a whole talk about this, about the fundamentally hierarchical nature of heaven. It's not just you staring at God, everyone on the same level, everything the same homogenous kind of reality, but it's a heterogeneous hierarchical kind of reality. And uh, I mean, St. Therese says this too, right? Everyone's full up, but some people have a thimble's worth and some people have a most giant 120 ounce um, gas station, you know, soda mugs that they can fill up and you want the bigger one, you know? So there's a hierarchy there too. Hierarchy, hierarchy, order, order. We need order as human beings. We like, it's difficult to do. We don't like to clean our rooms, but we don't live if we don't have order. Preach. Well, we just want to thank you all for um, joining us, you know, for our, for our conversation here on this kind of shift um, from the ancient and medieval worldview to a modern view as we, as we consider the importance of hierarchy and order and uh, our continued exploration for meaning. So we want to thank you for tuning in, for listening to God's Planning, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.